Hello and welcome to Musings on History, episode 4.1, Monopsony. Hello and welcome back to Musings on History. For those of you who have tuned in before, I guess you noticed the lack of theme music. GarageBand is messing up my audio tracks and I'm really not sure what to do about it. If you know what I'm talking about and you can help, hit me up on Twitter at at DarkSister, that's capital D-A-R-K-E underscore capital S-I-S-T-E-R. For the first time listeners, hi, I'm your host, Dana, and I'm kind of an amateur know-it-all, unless it's about GarageBand. Usually this podcast has theme music, which you can hear if you go back and check out my previous miniseries. And so for this miniseries, I wanted to switch it up a bit and talk about words, their meanings, and the history behind them. I think it's important to know the history of words because words have the power to create belief and understanding. What I mean by that is words make concepts into reality so much to the point that the use of a particular word has the ability to frame a person's entire understanding of a concept. Sometimes when I'm online, I get very frustrated when I see words being used out of their proper context. Most of the time, it's harmless. Like when people say something is moot. Moot didn't actually start out meaning that something is irrelevant to the point. But as language and discourse have changed, the use of the word moot in that context has become so ubiquitous that for all intents and purposes, it's now entirely acceptable to say this is a moot point. But then there are other times, times when I get the impression that a person is intentionally misusing a word in order to distort people's perception and understanding of the concept. That's when I get upset because I hate it when people play on like public lack of awareness is very exploitative to me. I've always felt that knowledge is to be shared, not exploited. And that's why I do this podcast. So without further ado, the word for today's episode is monopsony. Monopsony is not a word that you'll hear a lot outside of most economics classes or consortiums, but as a concept, it's very relevant to the life of the average worker. The Oxford Dictionary defines a monopsony as an oligopsony limited to one buyer, which isn't very helpful if you don't already know what an oligopsony is. The Financial Times defines monopsony as a market where only one buyer exists or a single buyer dominates the market, which I think is a much better starting point than what Oxford gives us. Monopsony can be easily confused with monopoly, but I have an example to explain the difference. In a monopoly, you might want a cookie, right? But you only have one supplier for all your cookie needs. In a monopsony, there might be several companies selling the cookies, but they're all selling to the same group of people. Under the capitalist social framework that we've all lived under our entire lives, the idea of multiple companies competing for the same business seems natural and advantageous for the consumer because it means the seller will do just about anything to make sure you choose their product over the competition. But the reality is that companies don't just compete for buyers. They also compete for resources, including human resources in the form of employees. What this should mean is that companies are always trying to outdo and one-up one another to entice the best talent to work for them. And on the surface, it can seem like that. Uh, Employers do compete when they use phrases like competitive wages and comparable benefits package. But if you start to dig a little deeper, you'll see that these phrases have largely become smoke and mirrors. And employers have actually found ways to make monopsonies work in their favor. To start, I want to take you back to the Middle Ages. 
The Middle Ages is the starting point for a lot of the economic structures that we live under today. And since I came to realize this, my life has not known peace. In medieval Europe, the market town was, for the most, the center of economic life. And it was a very small center. Most people eked out an existence as subsistence or tenant farmers. And if and when they had extra goods left over, they sold these goods at market. The problem was there was generally only one buyer, the Lord who owned the village and the land and everything and everyone on it. The Lord determined the wages. He determined the rents. He determined if you could sell, when you could sell, what you could sell and how much of it you could sell. He was the main buyer because he had the most need given the size of his household and his duty to maintain said household. So generally, everything sold in the market was sold with the Lord of the manor in mind. His taste, his mood, his way, no highway. And if the Lord says, I'm not paying that much for wool, then guess what you got to do? Lower the price of your wool. After all, no one else needs that much wool. And even if they did, the Lord doesn't pay them enough to afford it. So essentially, the entire economy turned on the whim of this one guy. And that kept the economic market in medieval Europe pretty stagnant. Now, in a given area, there were often several lords in accompanying manors and freedmen, serfs are a whole nother matter. This freedman could leave one lord's manor and find employment with the next. So what the lords did was they came together and agreed that they would all offer crappy wages and high rents so that the tenants would, one, not feel the need to leave, and two, not question why their wages were so low. If everyone you know makes similar amounts of money for similar work, it becomes what's known as an industry standard. And since people tend to conform to standards more often than they reject them because we're social creatures, that's how the norms are formed. Now we jump forward a few hundred years to the present where the market is much larger, but monopsony still exists. In the United Kingdom, the National Health Service is the dominant buyer of medical equipment and prescription drugs in the country, given that the majority of Britons rely upon the NHS for their health care needs. Monopsony is the desired effect of nationalization of industry because in this way, the government doesn't have to pay competitive prices for goods and services. And this, in turn, saves the taxpayer money as well, both when the government procures the goods and when the taxpayer uses the service. Now, not everyone is a proponent of nationalization and the monopsony that benefits government services and taxpayers. In the U.S., healthcare is privatized with the majority of Americans with healthcare because not all have it, using a non-government-owned company to provide their healthcare insurance. With the government and several healthcare companies competing for uh, prices on medical equipment and prescription drugs, the companies that provide these goods are able to charge more competitive prices and offer discounts arbitrarily to companies so that they can market their insurance. This is an example of monopsony in the goods and services market. However, monopsonies also exist in the labor market. In the labor market, buyers are the workers and the sellers are the companies that need their labor. A classic example of this is called the company town. In decades past, when the labor market in most countries was localized rather than globalized, a single large employer usually dominated the employment market and other smaller employers existed to service the workers of the large employer. To take it back to the medieval example, you have a lord, right? He's very powerful. He could feel like 300 knights in battle. 
So for people that aren't like avid military history enthusiasts, this means he has 300 mounted knights sworn into his service. To be a knight, you have to have a horse, armor, and a sword at a minimum. You also need a squire to take care of your armor and your horse, as well as a place to put all the stuff. Horses need shoes, feed, saddles, and other horse tack to be functional. Squires need to eat and be trained, since the main reason they're squiring for you is for the chance to earn, uh, learn to be a knight themselves. So a whole cottage industry quickly developed centered around the needs of a knight. Blacksmiths, tanners, innkeepers, horse trainers, horse breeders, masters at arms to teach squires and newly made knights the best way to fight. And they're all ultimately dependent on the lord whose service the knight is in. So in the company town, you have your lord in the main employer, say a coal mining company. The coal mining company employs most of the town to mine coal or serve in other administrative functions. The people of that town will need homes to live in, food to eat, schools to send their children to, a church, whatever. And the company town is formed around those needs being met by smaller businesses and services. But if the coal mining company closes down, this sends a ripple effect throughout the community that affects every worker in the town, whether they work for the mining company or not. However, a company does not need to be the sole employer for a monopsony to form. For a more recent example, you can look at the tech industry. Several large firms whose names I will not mention are headquartered in a certain valley in a certain state in the United States. They have created a monopsony on the labor market in this valley to depress wages. The way they've done this is through collusion. Although it sounds ominous, collusion in the free market is not illegal. So what these companies have done is agree to offer only a certain amount, not too much, for any jobs within their company. And that way, an industry standard is formed and all the most talented workers won't flock to one company over over another for better pay. Some have argued that without monopsony, the market power of wage earners will kill jobs because when people are paid more, the cost of other goods and services goes up in reaction, which is also known as inflation. But what researchers Aaron Drogett Dubé, T. William Lester, and Michael Reich found out in 2014 was that as wages increase, specifically minimum wages increase, these don't kill jobs or significantly drive up inflation. Instead, it kills the number of job vacancies. See, low-wage jobs have a lot of turnover since the person working in the low-wage position is almost always guaranteed to leave at the first sign of better pay, obviously. Now, when these wages are increased, the people in those positions are more likely to stay and make the new higher wage at their current job than leave and take their chances elsewhere. Humans are creatures of habit, which employers know. Minimum wages and their inability to keep up with the cost of living surge as a wage monopsony for the service industry, especially with little variation in wages found from employer to employer. This keeps the turnover, which then generates a bit of um, economic anxiety. I've heard that term being used, and I guess I'm just going to use it today. It creates that sort of anxiety amongst these low-wage earners that it really doesn't matter. I'll just hop from job to job to job, and they're all going to pretty much pay the same because, well, they are. 
Now, some employers have tacked on an ethical image to their company's brand, offering higher wages than their industry competitors and some other perks as well. But they, too, participate in monopsony by not operating in certain regions and areas in agreement with their competitors so that in a certain area, you should expect depressed wages. That's the reason why certain places in the United States, like the Deep South, not known for having high wages across industries where you could make double doing the same thing on the East Coast, you're likely to make less, and that's because of monopsony. But either they'll do that, agreeing to not operate in a certain area, or not hiring at the same rate as their competitors. Like, oh yeah, you can get a good paying job here if one becomes available. But a caveat to that, although they're higher than industry standard wages might play a part in why they don't hire as much, being that they don't have to hire as much as their peers because they pay more and have less turnover. So that's something to think about. So there you have it. A brief summation of monopsony as it exists both in the goods and services market and the labor market. Next episode, I will tackle another term I see banded about improperly, gentrification. And I also hope to have my theme music back up and running. So join me next time for more Musings on History.